1: And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hi, it's Manveen. Today's episode is the second of a two-part series by one of our producers, Asir Fuchs. It looks at the story of a young man who died after being restrained by
0: police in South Wales last year, and his family, who are still searching for answers. Before we begin, a warning. The following programme contains some content that listeners might find distressing. On a drizzly day in February this year, a crowd of around a hundred people and a couple dogs marched through the streets of Newport in South Wales. They were there to mark the one-year anniversary of the death of Moyed Bashir. The gathering was half memorial, half protest. One year before, on February 17, 2021, Moyed's dad called an ambulance. His son was in the grips of an acute mental health episode. Instead of paramedics, police arrived. They restrained the 29-year-old for a prolonged period of time. At the end, Moyad was dead. But now, back to that memorial march.
3: We had people from Swansea, Bristol, London, Cardiff coming down.
0: That's Moyad's older brother, Mohaned, or Mo. He's also a friend of mine. He still doesn't know exactly what happened to his brother on the day he died. But he and his family are trying to find answers.
3: We marched through uh, the city. We went all the way to um, Newport Court to start with. As we were marching, we were chanting, remembering Wade's name. No justice, no peace. A couple of people gave some speeches outside the Newport Court. It's
4: been one year, and we're here today again be here next year and we'll be here the year after that. We stand here with the family to show our strength. For aid we will never tire. For aid we
2: will never forget.
3: And then we marched from that point all the way through the high street of Newport City, the town centre. People who were just shopping basically stood and started looking at what's going on. People who were driving around honking their their car and stuff, in support and solidarity. When we stopped outside the police station, for the first time ever, my parents showed up because it's their anniversary.
0: This was a big deal. In the years since their son's death, the Bashir parents hadn't made any public appearances and have avoided journalists. It was Mo who had become the public face of the family's quest for justice. But that rainy day, the one-year anniversary, they decided to come out.
3: Uh, we're just gonna have a moment now to light candles from WEIRD. So the family's gonna go first. There's a few candles over here as well. If you brought some... I think my parents finally had the courage and say, okay, this is the anniversary we're doing this from WEIRD. It was beautiful. My mom was very moved. She was crying. I think my dad was just was trying to keep it in. <laughs> Typical.
0: In part one, we heard about the events of February 17th, 2021.
3: Police officers in black and blue uniforms turned up. My dad had one more look at my brother, and he knew that he was gone already.
0: We learned about Moyed, the good memories.
3: He used to host barbecues at the park, he was known for his chicken.
0: And the demons he battled. He'd served some time in prison for a drug offense. He was facing deportation, and his mental health had gone downhill after he was stabbed just a month before his death.
3: He was seeing things that weren't there anymore. That that doesn't exist, really. He was talking to himself a lot. So psychologically, he was not right.
0: In this episode, we'll check in with his family who are learning to live with their loss. They are also trying to figure out what happened the day their son died and who might be responsible. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Asya Fuchs. Today, A Lost Brother, Part 2, Seeking Answers.
1: Nice to meet
0: you. On a crisp day last month, I was in an office in Farringdon, in central London, to meet the Bashir family lawyer. Kate Maynard, solicitor from Hickman and Rose. And how did you come to be the lawyer for the Bashir family? One of the brothers rang me
2: out of the blue in December, um, asking for some informal advice as they'd seen me in the
0: news discussing another police case. Kate's referring to the Daly and Atkinson case. Dalian Atkinson was a black ex-footballer who was killed by a police officer in 2016. Last year, a jury convicted that officer of manslaughter. More on this later, but Kate was also the lawyer for Atkinson's family. That's how the Bashirs heard about her. And then they came back to me shortly afterwards and asked
2: if I would represent them, and obviously I uh, agreed to do that.
0: What did you make of the family? They've been desperate
2: for answers and for accountability for almost a year. But in all of those awful circumstances, the family have acted with such dignity and and bravery and and honour.
0: What were your initial thoughts about, about the case from that first conversation?
2: Well, almost a year had passed since Moyad's death. And there was some catching up for me to do to understand what had been done, what needed to be done. And the priority for the family at that time was to see the body worn video of the police officers restraining Moyad, which they'd been asking to see for some
0: time. In February 2021, a few days after Moyad died, Gwent police handed over the body-worn, or body cam, footage from the officers who came to the Bashir's house to the Independent Office for Police Conduct. The IOPC is the police watchdog for England and Wales. They're currently carrying out an investigation into Moyad's death. They pixelated and edited footage from the different body cameras into a two-hour compilation, documenting what happened when the police came to the Bashir home. But the family had to fight to see the footage. This February, a full year after Moyad's death, with Kate's help, the family finally saw it. These cases are inherently slow. There seems to be
2: institutional delay in all areas. And it's one of the most awful things for families to come to terms with, which is the delay. It's not personal. It, unfortunately, it's institutional.
0: I asked the IOPC why they took so long to show the family the footage. They told me they would have liked to have shown the family this evidence much sooner, but added there was a considerable volume of footage to analyze and that the family may be involved as witnesses at the inquest into Moyad's death. So they had to consult with the coroner over when would be an appropriate stage for them to see it.
3: The way I look at it, if we had the chance, let's say, by the end of February um, last year to see the body cam footage, we would be able to probably grieve a little bit quicker, healthier, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, not letting the family members to wait for a year. It's like a torture, you know? It's, um, yeah, it just plays with our mind, and our mental health was just deteriorating for that long. And then seeing the cam footage a year later, that's where everything kicks in again. I think the system needs to look into that. It's not fair on us, it's not fair on other families out there.
4: How do
0: you prepare a family for watching something like the body cam footage? Well,
2: the barrister and I watched it first so that we knew what they were going to see and, and help advise them about that before they saw it. But again, nothing can prepare them for seeing Moyed dying in, in front of their
0: eyes. Because of the inquest, Mo won't go into the details of what he saw with me. But I asked about the day he finally watched that footage.
3: So it was myself, dad, my youngest brother, Mohammed. Mom opted out. Thank God that she did, because I don't think she would be able to handle it. It was too much for her anyway. And she couldn't sleep the night before, knowing the fact that we going to go and see the body cam footage. She was worried about us. We got to the Newport court where we knew we were going to be there the next day because of the anniversary. And uh, the counselors were there.
0: These were victim support counselors.
3: So they had a conversation with us first with regards to, if you feel uncomfortable, you can just stop at any time and do some breathing exercises and all that kind of stuff, which is okay. The counselors were there before the video started and then they left the room because of legal reasons. They can't see the, the footage. Then we had a chat with the legal team. They saw the footage first, they got some notes and the IOPC were there. Then we went to this big room with a big screen, sat down, still with the COVID restrictions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Um, press play. From what I remember, when we had the first break, from watching the footage, the counselors, they were waiting for us outside the door straight away. They asked us, how are you, how are you feeling? Are you okay? Despite everything, do you need any help? Do you need to talk about anything? But I think me and my brother, we just went at the back and in the garden and just got some fresh air and we're just talking among ourselves about, you know, checking on each other, making sure that my brother is okay and he's checking on me.
0: You watched it in a couple of sessions. You didn't watch it all the way.
3: No, it was it was quite long. I think it was it was an all day. But the duration of the compilation was about probably two hours. What we saw, what I saw, basically answered some of the questions. All this time that I was in my brother's room since July twenty twenty one, I was just wondering what happened. And of course, going by my parents' accounts and reading statements and all that kind of stuff, my mind can just Go 100 miles per hour can just take me to the darkest place. Now that I saw the footage, I'm not imagining things anymore. I'm at peace. I know now what happened.
0: As I mentioned, Mo can't tell us exactly what he saw in the footage. And of course, all he saw was the incident, pixelated and edited as it played out. There was no context. Basically, it comes down to this we know Moyed was restrained. Mo saw how it happened but we still don't know why. Along with the rest of us, Mo and his family will have to wait until the inquest for an explanation. The inquest won't just look into the officer's conduct, but might take into account factors like how the 999 call was handled. So it's not a trial. It basically tries to establish what happened. Meanwhile, the IOPC investigation, which looks specifically at the conduct of the officers involved, is nearing completion. I put to Kate, the family lawyer, some of the questions that have been playing on my mind about the day. Questions that the inquest might answer. In what circumstances can police, you know, can they restrain someone? Well, general police powers allow them to
2: use force that's reasonable and proportionate in circumstances for self-defense, for defense of another, for the prevention of crime for defence of property, and to effect a lawful arrest. And it's up to the police always to justify that use of force. And in, in Moyed's case, we don't know what the police officers are saying in terms of
0: their decision-making and powers to lay hands on Moyed. I wanted to check in with Simon Kempton from the Police Federation, which represents rank-and-file officers. Remember, we heard from him in part one.
4: In terms of when we can use force, there's three primary bits of legislation or powers that we use and each of those helps explain when we might use it. The first one would be common law and common law says that any person, police officer or otherwise, can use force to defend themselves, to defend somebody else, to protect property. The second piece of legislation comes from what's called the Police and Criminal Evidence Act and that tells us that as a police officer I can use force if it's reasonable and if it's justified. If I'm doing my job lawfully... And in order to do that job, I have to use force, then I can. But I need to be able to justify it. The level of force needs to be commensurate with the issue that I'm trying to overcome. I need to be accountable, and I am accountable for my individual actions. So, for example, if I've got a supervisor who says use force, I don't have to use force if I don't feel it's necessary. It's up to me, and I have to account for my own actions. And then lastly, you've got the Criminal Law Act. It's not just about police officers. Again, it's any person in the country can use reasonable force either to prevent a crime from happening or to stop somebody escaping after they've committed a crime, broadly speaking.
0: So we know that Moyad was facing deportation. We know he'd had some prior convictions and he had recently been the victim of a knife attack. What impact do you think, I mean I'm sure that impacted him as well, but what impact do you think that might have had on how the police behaved?
2: We don't know what the police officers who attended the family house had been told about Moyed. The officers will be asked questions in the inquest about what they knew what they thought that they were facing and they'll be judged ultimately on what they've been told what they saw what they heard and what they did at this point we can't judge that because we don't know what they were they were told um about Moyed you know how that
0: colored how they approached him for example we don't know any of that yet so there are a couple ways that Moyed's case might go to a criminal trial if the inquest jury concludes that Moyed was unlawfully killed or evidence emerges of other criminality, the Crown Prosecution Service could be asked to review the case and consider criminal charges. Or if the IOPC considers that any criminal matters need to be referred to the Crown Prosecution Service, this is what happened in the case of Dalian Atkinson, the Black ex-footballer killed by police in 2016.
2: On the night of his death in Telford, Mr Atkinson had been suffering an acute mental health crisis. His family said instead of receiving help, he received... The judge said that Benjamin Monk's kicks to Dalian Atkinson's head after he had tasered the footballer to the ground contributed. PC Benjamin Monk from West Mercia Police jailed for eight years for the manslaughter of Dalian Atkinson.
0: In Moyad's case, currently no officers have been served misconduct notices. But I wanted to ask Kate, who was the lawyer for the Atkinson family, about that case and what it might mean for Mo and his family. Until
2: now, over the last 30 years, a jury has not convicted a police officer for a homicide offence in relation to his or her policing duties. I sat in the, the witness room with the family while the jury was out and the, the toll it took on them was was incredible. It was very nerve-wracking and, and exhausting. It was an incredible outcome and you know, the, the family, they don't relish people going to prison. They they weren't after blood, but they felt that they got justice for Dalian. So it was a an important moment. Representing brief families in these cases, we used to despair. The juries apparently wouldn't convict police officers, but, but they have now, and we hope that this is a, a turning point, really, for these kinds of complex
0: cases. And how, I mean, this is your job, so you are obviously coming across these kinds of cases all the time, this is what you do, but how common are our cases involving deaths following police contact or custody in, in England and Wales? And in particular, is, does this disproportionately affect people of colour? Um, I mean, my firm
2: specializes in assisting bereaved families following deaths in custody. So between us, we always have a tranche of cases. And in my 20 years of experience, most, but not all, of the deceased in our cases were black men. I mean, I can only talk about
0: cases in which we've been instructed. While Kate will only speak about cases she's worked on, Moyad Bashir was a black man who had died after coming into contact with police. And I wanted to find out how often that happened in England and Wales.
5: There's the official data which is published by the Independent Office for Police Conduct, who also investigate deaths in police custody and contact. They publish annual statistics, and the most recent ones, I've got it here actually. That's Lucy
0: Mackay from a charity called Inquest, which supports families who have been bereaved by state-related deaths.
5: The most recent statistics, they said there were 16 deaths in police custody, which would include kind of a range of deaths, whether it's literally in the custody suite or it's outside and the person had been arrested. The issue with that data is that it doesn't include all deaths where the person hasn't officially been detained or arrested. So the
0: IOPC stats wouldn't include deaths like Moyad's, who was restrained by police at home. He was not under arrest or in detention.
5: So Inquest, for the past 40 years, has also created our own data based on casework monitoring, which covers a broader range of deaths. And what we have recorded is that since 1990, there have been 1,800 deaths in police custody and contact in England and Wales. And let me just get my little note up that breaks that down. What we recorded is that at least 150 of those 1,800 people were people who are racialized as black or who have a mixed ethnic background, the data on ethnicity isn't very good, especially the older data. So the actual number might be higher. But basically, that's a big percentage that's disproportionate with the population. So we've long seen a disproportionate number of deaths in police custody of black people. And then when you break that down further, where there's use of force involved... There's a much higher number of Black people who die following police use of force. And when you add in mental health as a factor, that's even greater, the disproportionality. So there's been
0: a really big cultural conversation in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement after the death of George Floyd about race and policing. What role does race play when it comes to interaction with with the police? What are you guys seeing?
5: What we see is a consistent issue of institutionalized racism in policing which leads to the disproportionate number of deaths of black men or people from racialized groups more broadly in circumstances where there's mental ill health but also broader circumstances where they're disproportionately criminalized and since the McPherson report after the murder of Stephen Lawrence there's been this question of the police being institutionally racist that was 20 years ago more than 20 years ago and we would repeat that we still believe the police are institutionally racist and that not enough has been done to address the concerns which were again raised following the death of George Floyd.
0: I've asked Gwent police how they would respond to claims by the charity inquest that institutional racism still exists within police forces. They strongly deny this and sent me a response, read here by a producer.
4: We are working hard to eradicate any overt or underlying unacceptable attitudes and behaviours in our force towards any minority group. Whether this is around unconscious bias training to encourage officers and staff to challenge their patterns of thinking or working with members of the public to hold us to account on our stop-search performance, we are determined to get this right. Our commitment is for Gwent Police to be actively anti-racism.
2: I'm Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free.
5: Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
1: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
0: For nearly a decade, Moe had been living in London. He played bass in a metal band. He was an amateur boxer. As I mentioned in part one, that's how I met him, at a boxing gym in East London.
3: Right, so this is my place.
0: But after his brother's death, he moved back home to Wales, to Newport, and for six months, Mo lived in the Bashir family house in Moyed's old room. When I went to see him in February, he just moved into a place of his own on a quiet little street, five minutes' drive from his parents. Yeah, it's
3: not bad. Just, just need the lock the door. Yes, yeah, uh, the three flats in here. Um, one of the steps is a little bit steep.
0: How long have you been living in the new place?
3: I picked up the keys on the 8th of February. It's a bit surreal, but I've been working so hard to get my own place. It's calmer. The vibes in this place is how I want it to be, you know, a bit more peaceful. Compared to what I used to live at the family home.
0: Was it a difficult decision to, to kind of move out of the family home?
3: Or was it just time? I physically and mentally couldn't hack it anymore. I couldn't stay there any longer, especially when we finally had the, uh, the date to go and see the body cam footage. And I knew that I need to get out of there because the last thing I want to do is basically see the body cam footage and then come back to the same place. So for my mental health, being able to be strong and push the campaign and be there to support my family. And, yeah, no way. I had to leave, I had to get out straight away. This big lady, her name is Dorothy. Uh, I think she's a money tree.
0: Mo gives me the grand tour. Sunlight pours in through the windows. He shows me a giant plant that's traveled with him from London.
3: And, yeah, yeah, I think she's about six or seven years old.
0: There's his music equipment on one side of his room. I've
3: got, you know, all my guitars here, my pedals and amplifiers.
0: And his boxing kit on the other.
3: Yeah, <laughs> getting back into it now, because the St. Joe's Boxing Club is just down the road.
0: There's also a wall of photos.
3: Me and my brothers when we were little. This is a funny one. I know. The one on the left, basically the three of us wearing pretty much similar outfits, but in different colors. And me wearing the blue Adidas kit. Muir um, on the far left wearing a red added ass kit. And uh, Muhammad is wearing some ba- baseball outfit, I think. Um, every time I look at that picture, he reminds me of Stewie Griffin from Family Guy. <laughs> <laughs> he does, right?
5: Yeah,
3: yeah. He does. <laughs> yeah. What a serious little baby. Yep, he is. <laughs> he was. <laughs> yeah.
0: How has um, this whole experience, the death of Moyad and then everything that happened after, how has it changed you and how has it changed your family?
3: Family-wise, we are still broken. We're still in pain. I went to visit Moyad this morning, went to the cemetery. I was just by myself and I keep looking at the grave. and I, and, I, and I was just speaking out loud saying, I still can't believe this. I'm not supposed to be visiting anyone in, in a cemetery. I was saying to Moed, you shouldn't be there. It hurts. Uh, it's surreal, but I know it's, this is what's happening. This is where we are now. I look at life completely from a different uh, lens, from a completely different perspective. It's, it's quite strange to say I never had any trouble or any issues with the police. I've always had a clean record of my profile and everything. And uh, ever since this happened, I see police everywhere and I get it now when lots of youngsters from ethnic minorities, they always say they don't feel safe when the police is around. They get harassed by the police. I get it now. I see it. I feel it. I hear it. There was an occasion where I went to have some food with a friend of mine in town, and he brought someone with him that I'd never met before. He asked me about what I'd do for a living and how do you know so-and-so. So we go way back and we work for the same company. And jokingly, he was saying, oh, I might be able to get some discount for us tonight because of the, um, was it, uh, blue light card, whatever it's called.
0: The guy Mo had just met, the friend of a friend, had a blue light card, a discount that emergency workers can use.
3: For some reason, I, just, I was just on edge the minute that he was flashing his card. And uh, he said, oh, no, it's just emergency services. And that's who I work for. I said, paramedics, right? And he looked at me with a smoke saying, no, fed. And it's like, what do you mean, police? And I am like, yeah. And from that moment, I just couldn't stop. I just locked my eyes on him. And then I said, I'm a lead campaigner for Justice from Weird. And he was like, oh, I know about that story. What do you do? So I'm his older brother. The mood changed straight away. He said, I'm not part of the Gwent Police. I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, it was literally a stare down. <laughs> and then my friend came around like, right, guys. So what do you want to have the food? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, ever since, I just felt they're everywhere. So while... The police officer and my, my friend basically wondering what they're gonna have f- for dinner. I was just on my phone. I was just feeling, I was just like, I can't be here. I was just being awkward, deliberately awkward. I need to get out, but I, I need to find the right time to, to excuse myself because I was angry. I don't wanna make a scene. I don't wanna do anything stupid. On top of that, it's my friend, the other guy who invited me for dinner. So I don't wanna uh, make a scene out of that. Anyway, yeah, literally the police officer broke the ice and said, look, I understand that you don't feel comfortable sharing this table with, you know, and I'm sitting opposite you. I said, yeah, you're right. I'm glad you brought that up. And to be honest with you, I'm going to have to leave. I'm out. And the last thing he said, I'm sorry. That's the last thing he said.
0: Do you think that there will ever be a point in your life where you will be comfortable to, to share a table with a police officer?
3: Um, I really don't know because th- what happened then with that particular in- um, situation is because it was a couple of days after seeing the body cam footage, it was a couple of days after the anniversary, so it was too raw. I go to a local gym where I know some of the guys there are police officers and we go way back. I used to play American football for South Wales team. One of them was a police officer and he was a decent guy. Well, he is. And that's the thing. I, I know for a fact not every single police officer is, is a bad person. But with the situation that I'm in and what's happening and what's happened to my brother, I'm finding it really difficult to try not to uh, paint them with the same brush. I might get to that point after after we get justice, after the whole case will be over and done with.
0: What would you say to other families who are in a similar situation or who are going through something similar?
3: Be strong and always just look after yourselves because, oh, get, get, some, get some serious help because I'm getting therapy now and uh, it does help. It's not going to be easy. It does require a lot of work. Keep yourself busy in a good way. Be productive, not destructive.
0: What do you hope for the inquest? What do you hope results from it when it finally does happen?
3: Um, We would like to see... The, uh, the police officers and whoever was involved that morning to be accountable and own what happened, an apology from the institution. On top of that, the, the, the country and the government really need to start looking into the issues of mental health and and really fund the emergency services where they need the money so bad to provide a good service that we should, that every person is entitled to and deserve.
0: To reiterate, these are all matters the inquest will have to grapple with whenever it happens. Gwent police have told this podcast their officers who attended on the day are distraught by the tragic death of Mr. Bashir. Their focus was wholly on delivering the best care possible for Mr. Bashir until an ambulance arrived. Meanwhile, the Welsh Ambulance Service told me it always tries to provide a timely response and is sorry it fell below the Bashir family's expectations. The IOPC say their investigation into Moyad's death is near conclusion, and they are considering whether there are any lessons to be learned. So far, they say they have not found evidence that any police officer may have committed any criminal offense or behaved in a manner that would justify the bringing of disciplinary proceedings. I asked Mo what he hopes the next chapter will look like for his family.
3: Take back control. I know, I sound like a Tory right now, but <laughs> that's the slogan for me this year: to take back control. And I think every family who's going through this, because their lives and our lives turned 180. It was out of our, our, out of control what happened, and we had to adapt to it. It's it's terrible what we're going through right now. We just want a bit of peace, you know bit of normality.
0: Moyad Bashir died on February 17th, 2021. He was 29 years old. His family are still waiting for an inquest. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Today's episode was produced and reported by me, Asya Fuchs with editorial support from Brenna Daldorf. The executive producer is Will Rowe, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. Thanks for listening.